Well, there we are now. I've brought up this morning's notes rather than this evening's notes. Perhaps we're getting somewhere. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, that we can sing of your Son, our Redeemer. Thank you for this great, this wonderful story of love. The Son of God who came to earth, became a man, humbled himself to death on a cross for us. Lord, we ask for your help to take these things in today, again. They may come home to us again with power, with conviction, with rejoicing, as we realize how greatly you have loved us, how far you have removed our sin and guilt from us. And what was the means of our salvation? What was the accomplishment? What did it cost the Lord Jesus Christ? What love you showed us in his death for us. <coughs> Lord, give us a renewed understanding, we pray, of the person and work of Christ. A renewed sense of all that he is and all that he's done. Lord, humble us to receive these things with meekness and yet with rejoicing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Paul's letter to the Philippians is a letter to a church which was having problems. There were disagreements. There were quarrels. Towards the end of the letter, he names two women who've fallen out. He names them in the word of God. He doesn't tell us why they fell out or what they fell out over or which one's right and which one's wrong. It evidently isn't some big issue of fundamental Christian belief or practice, but there's something that's put these women against each other. And he just says, I appeal to you to, to be at peace. But actually, when you read the letter... So much of it addresses this issue of how we relate to each other as Christians and how we live together in, in one church, in one body, and how we avoid falling out with each other and separating and how we deal with the ill feeling and how we think of each other as the Lord's people. And it's a badly needed message today, isn't it, if you know of churches where people have fallen out and left and People have stopped going to church altogether. They're so hurt and upset by the way they've been treated. And uh, COVID was a big one for that, wasn't it? Where people took different opinions and the church should open, the church should stay closed. And it became, in some churches, quite divisive and quite painful. But it's only one of many, many issues on which we Christians will see things differently. And yet God calls us to live at peace in one body under Jesus Christ our head. Philippians is given to us to help us to manage those relationships in a godly, God-honoring, fruitful and constructive way. I'm going to take just three verses today. Verse 5, four verses. Verse 5, 6, 7 and 8. And here Paul gives us the heart of the answer. You and I need to have the mind of Christ. We must have the same attitude that the Lord Jesus Christ had. Let me read those verses to you and then give them to you under three headings. Philippians 2 verse 5. 
Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Well, it's tempting to go on and read how God highly exalted him and so on, but there's enough in those verses, I think, for us this morning to think about. Plenty enough. And enough, I hope, to help us to have that same attitude that Christ had. He was willing to submit to his father, first of all. Secondly, he was ready to suffer as a man. But thirdly, of course, he was eager to serve you and me as our saviour. Ready, willing to submit to his father, ready to suffer as a man, but eager to serve you and me as our saviour. So we start in verse 6 where we're told that Jesus Christ was in the very form of God. We know that he was equal to God in every way. He was in no respect inferior to his father. If God has all power, then Jesus Christ from all eternity past has all power. Before ever he was born as a baby, he was omnipotent God. If God has all wisdom, then from eternity past, Jesus Christ has all wisdom. If God has all authority, Jesus Christ, the Son, the Word of God, has all authority. He is equal to God in his worth, his dignity, his authority, his wisdom, and his power, and everything else you can think of. He is in no way a lesser God, or a smaller God, or a subordinate God in his nature and being. He was in the very form of God. That adds this particular point to our thinking. He looked like God. If you saw Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate state, you saw a figure of overwhelming glory and majesty. You saw one from whom you would instinctively shrink in fear, if not fall at his feet in worship, because he had all the glory and splendor of God about him. He was in the form of God. He looked like God. And yet he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Or in another translation here, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't aspire to any kind of rivalry with his father. He didn't look for independence. He didn't want to be a second separate God in any way. He went to the opposite extreme. He emptied himself, literally in verse 7. He emptied himself. In our translation here, he made himself of no reputation. That's certainly true, but he did more than that, as I'll try to explain. In eternity past... Way back before time began, before there was a world, before there was a creation, before there was a human race. There was an agreement between the Father and the Son, sometimes called the covenant of redemption. And they agreed that the Son, though equal with the Father, would nevertheless submit to his Father completely and serve him. And as the servant of God, 
he would become a man for our salvation. Now we'll talk about him becoming a man in a moment, but pause on this point with me just to start with. God the Son, equal with the Father, of his own choice as a volunteer, he says, I will serve you as my God. I will put myself under your authority. I will submit to your plan of salvation. I won't rebel against you. I won't quarrel with you. I won't complain. I will serve you fully and completely. Well, I don't know about you, but I find submission hard. If I see a speed limit, it doesn't always come naturally to me to stick to it. If I come out on a Monday morning and I want to go somewhere quickly and I run into the back of a traffic jam, I have to stop and remind myself it's a God-appointed traffic jam. It's in the providence of God. It's there for a reason. I might not like the reason as I'm looking at my watch, but I must submit and accept these things. But Jesus Christ, even as a man on earth, he lived out that life of submission to the full. He said in John's Gospel, for example, I always do what pleases him. Extraordinary words, when you think about it, aren't they, of a human being, for a, a man made of the same stuff as us to say, I always do what pleases him. And yet it was literally true. That was the extent of his submission to his father. I do nothing on my own, he said. The most influential man in all human history. Thousands of books written about him. More books written about him than Hitler, Karl Marx, uh, Sigmund Freud and, and, and all the rest of them all put together. I do nothing on my own, he said, but speak just as the Father taught me. He never spoke an original word. It all came from his Father. That's the submission of Jesus Christ. Not counting it robbery to be equal with God, but making himself of no reputation, making himself nothing, going to that opposite extreme of rivalry with God, his Father, submitting to fulfill God's plan of salvation. Well, how we should admire him for this and adore him and love him. He had no need to submit to his Father. He's not like us. He wasn't a creature. We ought to submit to God and to speed limits and all sorts of things because of who we are. We're creatures made of clay. We ought to submit to our creator. But in Jesus' case, there was no ought about it. He was divine. He was equal with his father. And yet, he became the servant of God, submitted to him completely. We ought to admire him for this and praise him and thank him and imitate him. If it was right for him to serve God in this way, of course it's right for us as well. And that must be the model for our lives. Although we'll never do so completely and perfectly without sin in this life, we ought to aspire at least to be able to say, I am not here to do my will, but the will of my Father as Jesus said. And that really is the only way a church of different people will unite. 
if everybody is looking to serve God. It's the only basis for people to come together. Where serving God is, 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 is put to the side and, and people have their own ideas and their own opinions and their own theories about things and their own thoughts about what works and how things should be done, there'll never be agreement. Endless heated discussions. Or else people sitting silently and saying nothing, keeping their opinions to themselves, but not really in agreement, not really in harmony. As we learn to submit more completely to the will of God revealed to us in Scripture, so we also come closer together as Christians. And Christians from all sorts of different backgrounds can be one body in Christ. Where people are casual, negligent in pleasing God, then preferences and prejudices will come forward and disorder will thrive. But where it's our aim to please him in everything, we have that much in common. And that's the starting point for health and unity in the life of the church. But we go on because not only was Jesus willing to submit to his father, he was ready to suffer as a man. He made himself of no reputation. He put himself under his father's authority. He took the form of a bondservant. He came in the likeness of man, found in appearance as a man. So three times in those two verses, in three different words, Paul is telling us the same thing. When he came to earth, he looked like a man. He didn't look like God at all. All of that divine power and authority, he hid it in human form. So if you saw him, there was nothing at all remarkable about him. In fact, the only thing that I can find in the Bible about Jesus' appearance is where it says in Isaiah 53, he had no form that we should desire him. There was nothing there to look at in his human appearance. We couldn't say whether he was tall or short, well-built or skinny, whether his hair was brown or fair. We know nothing about his appearance at all because all of the divine majesty, all of that radiant splendor, he hid in flesh and blood. You might remember the disciples glimpsed this just for a moment, didn't they? Peter, James, and John, he took them with him up a high mountain. And it says in the gospel that he was transfigured so that even his clothes shone with a dazzling white, whiter than anybody could bleach them. At that moment, they saw something of his divine glory. And they were terrified. And they started babbling about making booths and things because they saw something of the true nature of Christ in that moment but that was just a glimpse a momentary glimpse during his career here on earth he appeared as if he was one of us this is one of the questions isn't it people have about Jesus becoming a man what did he give up exactly but he didn't give up being God did he that's certainly not true as a man he remained God all the way through so that for example he could literally walk on water. He could feed a great crowd. Not once, but twice has happened in the Gospels. Multiplying bread and fish, creating new food for them as the disciples passed it out. So he created more and more. And although they started with just a couple of loaves, they picked up baskets full of leftovers because he was God, even though he was man. He didn't give up being God but he laid aside the appearance of God. If he'd come into this world as God, with all his native glory and splendor, 
people would have been terrified. But because he came as a man, he could be insulted and mocked, criticized, complained about, threatened, attacked, seized, arrested, spat on, punched, hit, beaten across his back until the back was raw and red like raw meat. A crown of thorns pressed on his head. He could be led out, led to be nailed to a cross and left there to die. He was ready for that. He knew all that before it happened. He knew all that from eternity past when he made this agreement with his father. He knew what would happen. He was ready for it. That's why he came as a man. That's why he clothed his divine majesty in human form and appeared as one of us, a bondservant in appearance as a man, in the form of a bondservant, in the likeness of men, and so on. That's what it was all about. That's why he came. It seems to me that the way of faithfulness is always a way of suffering, whether or not you're the son of God, whether you're an ordinary Christian in 21st century Britain, a way of faithfulness to God will always involve some kind of pain. This was true of the Philippians. If you want to glance over at chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 27 and 28. This church, like many of the churches Paul wrote to, experienced a share of opposition in their town. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, he says to them. Whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. You see that theme of unity again there in Philippians? Wanting them to be one. But then he says, Philippians 1.28, Not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. Not in any way terrified by your adversaries. Well, I wonder if in Paul's mind as he wrote that, he thought that it's fear that sometimes brings division among Christians. When a church is under pressure, people will react in different ways. Some will take a stand and suffer for it. Others will take a milder route and escape from all trouble and hardship. And this is divisive then. And people say, well, why didn't you stand with me then? Why didn't you stand up on this issue? And it becomes a point of quarreling and contention. And this may not be necessarily our situation in Britain at the moment, but I think we can, we can feel it, it's coming, can't we? That persecution and opposition is perhaps around the corner for us as Christians. You can imagine a situation, can you, of two Christians at work and they're both told they've got to take part in Gay Pride Day or face some kind of official discipline from their company? Well, if they both do the same thing, but what if one goes one way and one goes the other? How are they going to be one? How are they going to be in harmony? How are they going to be united when one has, has, has backed down and taken part and he's kept his job and... The other's job is at risk because he took a stand for the Lord. Well, Paul says, don't be frightened about your adversaries. Don't let them scare you. 
Stand firm for Christ. He stood firm for you. He stood firm for you. He stood up to opposition, hatred, intimidation, violence, and cruel execution for us. So we should be ready to take a few blows for him. That's part of having the mind of Christ, chapter 2, verse 5. Being ready to suffer with him. Well, Christ was willing to submit to his Father. He's ready to suffer as a man. But he's also eager to serve as our Saviour. He's called a bond servant in verse 7. Or a slave, we might translate today. He became not just God's servant, but your servant and mine. All the way to death for our sins, he served us. All the way to the cross. Now we understand that Jesus Christ didn't become our errand boy. If he's our servant, we're not his masters. We sometimes sing that modern song, the servant king. He's still the king. And yet it is true that he put our needs ahead of his own. He thought of us more than himself. He preferred to do what would benefit us rather than seek his own peace and comfort and safety. He became our helper. He focused on our greatest need. The need that our sins might be paid for. He himself put it this way. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And he was eager to do it. He was willing to do it. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. Wasn't reluctant. He didn't have to have his arm twisted. He saw our need right before the world even existed. He saw our situation. He saw what we would be. He saw how we would buy for ourselves with our sins a lost eternity. And he said, I will serve them. I will die for them. I will take upon myself all their sins. Even before they're born, some of them. I will take on myself all their sins and carry them to the cross and answer for them. He was eager to do it. He rejoices now to think of millions who will be with him in eternity. Millions for whom he's paid the price. And he looks forward, as we do, to that day when we'll all be together in the presence of our God. So this is the mind of Christ. And Paul says, let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. Yes, he was willing to submit to his father. He's ready to suffer as a man, but he's also eager to serve as our saviour. Are we eager to serve then? That is the question, isn't it? How good are you at putting other people's needs and concerns ahead of your own within this church, within this family of God? That's the question. They say, don't they, that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery? Anybody ever said that to you? Well, 
This is how we honor, rather than flatter, I should say, this is how we honor Jesus Christ, by imitating him, by saying, yes, I will do what you did. You looked at others' needs and did what it needed to be done for them. I'll see if I can do the same. I'll see if I can have the same concern that you had for me and for my brothers and sisters. Some of you read Patricia St. John's Treasures in the Snow. I read her biography, her autobiography recently. It's a well-written book, as you'd expect from her, and it's got a number of, of features in it which perhaps relate to a bygone age. She mentions at one point four single women. I think one of them was her aunt or her cousin, something like that. And these women travelled overseas from this country. They went to live on an island in Lake Victoria in Africa. And this island was what was known at that time as a leper colony. And there were all the people suffering from this infectious disease, isolated and away from the rest of society. These four women went and lived among them and served them. And that was their entire life. They didn't seem to have a lot of the things that modern missionaries would have, such as health insurance, travel back to the UK, paid holidays and such things. In fact, I think I'm right in saying they never returned to the UK. They never got married, they never had children, and yet they lived a contented life, honoring Christ, serving other people for his sake. What an extraordinary way to live. What a wonderful way to honor Jesus Christ the servant king. It's so challenging to us, isn't it? Because we live in a society where relationships are often so transactional. You do this for me and I'll do this for you. You help me out, I'll help you out. Serving, being like Jesus, having the mind of Christ, turns out on its head. I'll, I will do for you, I'll put myself out for you, and I don't necessarily expect anything back. Very challenging, isn't it? We've got to consider others better than ourselves, Philippians 2, verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. That doesn't mean more gifted, but it does mean more significant. What you need should be more significant to me than what I think I need. Your concerns should be more important to me than my own. That's the mind of Christ. That's simply being like him. You can probably think of everyday examples of this from your church life of, of people who, who've served you in everyday sort of ways. When our two boys were, were tiny, we lived in South Wales for a bit. One of them had just been born, born in Neath Hospital. The other one was a toddler. And there's this... this, this grandmother figure in the church, lovely woman, who just took it upon herself to take our little toddler out. Every, every Thursday, I think it was, he'd go with her for the day. They'd feed the ducks and go on the swings and so on. It was such a help, such a help to a young family in a strange place. Just an example, an everyday example of that servant attitude. Or the church in Watford, where I used to be the pastor, where the single guy, well, he was, he was divorced, really. His, his family didn't want to know him. His, his, his daughters cut, cut him out of their lives. He was just a, a, a guy on his own in the church. And uh, one year, they decided they'd make a fuss of him for his birthday. 
take him out bowling and made a big occasion of it. I suppose you could say, in a way, the church was his family. Didn't have any blood family to celebrate with him, so the church celebrated with him instead. There's lots of examples like that you can probably think of yourself. And the call is for us to be like that, isn't it? Have the mind of Christ. If I'm in conversation with somebody, I've got to ask, how can I bless you in this conversation? I could use the conversation to tell impressive stories about myself and have you admire me perhaps or envy me. Or I could use the conversation to tell jokes that make you laugh and think what a funny chap he is. But how can I actually benefit you with what I say? What a challenging way of thinking about things, isn't it, really? I've got a spare day. Blank day in the diary. How do I use that time for someone else? Part of it, anyway. Can I use that to do something for someone who could use a bit of help? This is all just, I suppose, uh, trying to bring this down into our everyday lives and to say, what does it mean to have the mind of Christ in our lives here, in this church, in our day-to-day living? Well, you can see, can't you, that this attitude... This Christ-like approach to life will do a tremendous amount to build up the relationships in our churches. And people will be blessed as we honour him and imitate him in this way. This ultimately has to be the foundation for healthy church life, doesn't it? That we have the mind of Christ. We approach other people around us the way he approached us in our need. What can I do for them? What do they need? How can I benefit them? I will give myself to death on the cross for their salvation. Though the Lord of glory, fully equal with the Father, he willingly submitted to his Father, emptying himself. He was ready to suffer as a man coming in a human form. And he was eager to serve as our saviour. So may we have the mind of Christ. If he was willing to submit to his father, well, let's learn ourselves to submit more thoroughly then to God. If he was ready to face suffering, well, let's not be scared then of people who oppose us as Christians. Be ready to suffer with him. If he was eager to serve as our saviour without limit let's see if we can devote ourselves then to serving others I suppose if there's one word to sum this up just as I finish it would be the word humility humility the mind of Christ is a mind of humility towards God humility towards his father humility in the face of suffering humility in serving others this is the mind of of Christ. Let this mind be in you, which was also in him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that even a donkey may speak the word of God and it prove effective. So we pray that this message will work powerfully in the hearts 
of all those here, not because of the speaker, but because it's your message concerning your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for what we see of Christ here in the scriptures, the mind of Christ. We thank you this is revealed to us. But we pray, Lord, it's revealed to us in such a way that we can take it to heart and become like him. Lord, as we pray, we thought of that theme in Philippians of, of churches coming together, being of one mind and so on, and how important that is in this day and age. How we pray for churches we know where this is not the case. But how we pray for ourselves and, and for each other here today, that we may grow in the mind of Christ, that we may imitate him, we may honor him as we learn more and more what it is to submit to our Heavenly Father, as we're prepared to face suffering, he faced suffering for us. And as we learn what it is to serve for his sake. Lord, teach us these things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day. I believe it's number 607 in the hymn books. <laughs>